Chapter Four of Pele the Conqueror, Volume One, by Martin Anderson Nexo, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At four, Lasse and Pele were dressed and were opening the cow stable doors on the field side. The earth was rolling off its white covering of night mist, and the morning rose prophetically. Lasse stood still in the doorway, yawning and making up his mind about the weather for the day, but Pelle let the soft tones of the wind and the song of the lark, all that was stirring, beat upon his little heart. With open mouth and doubtful eyes he gazed into the incomprehensible, as represented by each new day with its unimagined possibilities. "'Today you must take your coat with you, for we shall have rain about midday,' Lasse would then say and Pelle peered into the sky to find out where his father got his knowledge from, for it generally came true. They then set about cleaning out the dung in the cow stable, Pelle scraping the floor under the cows and sweeping it up, Lasse filling the wheelbarrow and wheeling it out. At half-past five they ate their morning meal of salt herring and porridge. After that Pelle set out with the young cattle his dinner basket on his arm, and his whip wound several times round his neck. His father had made him a short, thick stick with rings on it, that he could rattle admonishingly and throw at the animals, but Pelle preferred the whip because he was not yet strong enough to use it. He was little, and at first he had some difficulty in making an impression upon the great forces over which he was placed. He could not get his voice to sound sufficiently terrifying and on the way out from the farm he had hard work, especially up near the farm, where the corn stood high on both sides of the field road. The animals were hungry in the morning, and the big bullocks did not trouble to move when once they had their noses buried in the corn, and he stood belaboring them with the short handle of the cattle whip. The twelve-foot lash, which, in a practiced hand, left little triangular marks in the animal's hide, he could not manage at all. And if he kicked the bullock on the head with his wooden shoe, it only closed its eyes good-naturedly and browsed on sedatedly with its back to him. Then he would break into a despairing roar or into little fits of rage in which he attacked the animal blindly and tried to get at its eyes. But it was all equally useless. He could always make the calves move by twisting their tails but the bullock's tails were too strong. He did not cry, however, for long at a time, over the failure of his resources. One evening he got his father to put a spike into the toe of one of his wooden shoes. And after that his kick was respected. Partly by himself, and partly through Rude, he also learned where to find the places on the animals where it hurt most. The cow-calves and the two bull-calves all had their particular tender spot and a well-directed blow upon a horn could make even the large bullocks bellow with pain. The driving out was hard work, but the herding itself was easy. When once the cattle were quietly grazing, he felt like a general, and made his voice sound out incessantly over the meadow, while his little body swelled with pride and a sense of power. Being away from his father was a trouble to him. He did not go home to dinner and often in the middle of his play despair would come over him. 
and he would imagine that something had happened to his father, that the great bull had tossed him, or something else, and he would leave everything and start running toward home crying, but would remember in time the bailiff's whip and trudge back again. He found a remedy for his longing by stationing himself so that he could keep a lookout on the fields up there and see his father when he went out to move the dairy cows. He taught himself to whittle boats and little rakes and hoes and decorate sticks with patterns cut upon the bark. He was clever with his knife and made diligent use of it. He would also stand for hours on the top of a monolith. He thought it was a gatepost and try to crack his cattle whip like a pistol shot. He had to climb to a height to get the lash off the ground at all. When the animals lay down in the middle of the morning, he was often tired too, and then he would seat himself upon the head of one of the big bullocks, and hold on to the points of its horns, and while the animal lay chewing with a gentle vibration like a machine, he sat upon its head and shouted at the top of his voice songs about blighted affections and horrible massacres. Toward midday, Rude came running up, as hungry as a hunter. His mother sent him out of the house when the hour for a meal drew near. Pelle shared the contents of his basket with him, but required him to bring the animals together a certain number of times for every portion of food. The two boys could not exist apart for a whole day together. They tumbled about in the fields like two puppies, fought and made it up again twenty times a day swore the most fearful threats of vengeance that should come in the shape of this or that grown-up person, and the next moment had their arms round one another's necks. About half a mile of sand dunes separated the stone farm fields from the sea. Within this belt of sand the land was stony and afforded poor grazing, but on both sides of the brook a strip of green meadowland ran down among the dunes which were covered with dwarf firs and grass racked to bind the sand. The best grazing was on this meadowland, but it was hard work minding both sides of it, as the brook ran between, and it had been oppressed upon the boy with severe threats that no animal must set its foot upon the dune-land, as the smallest opening might cause a sand-drift. Pelle took the matter quite literally, and all that summer imagined something like an explosion that would make everything fly into the air the instant an animal trod upon it. And this possibility hung like a fate at the back of everything when he heard it down there. When Rude came and they wanted to play, he drove the cattle up to the poor pasture where there was plenty of room for them. When the sun shone, the boys ran about naked. They dared not venture down to the sea for fear of the bailiff, who, they were sure, always stood up in the attic of the big house and watched Pelle through his telescope. But they bathed in the brook, in and out of the water, continually for hours together. After heavy rain it became swollen, and was then quite milky from the china clay that it washed away from the banks farther up. The boys thought it was milk from an enormous farm far up in the island. At high water the sea ran up and filled the brook with decaying seaweed, that colored the water crimson, and this was the blood of all the people drowned out in the sea. Between their bathes they lay under the dunes and let the sun dry them. They made a minute examination of their bodies and discussed the use and intention of the various parts. 
Upon this head Rude's knowledge was superior, and he took the part of instructor. They often quarreled as to which of them was the best equipped, in one way or another. In other words, had the largest. Pelle, for instance, envied Rude his disproportionately large head. Pelle was a well-built little fellow, and had put on flesh since he had come to Stone Farm. His glossy skin was stretched smoothly over his body, and was of a warm, sunburnt color. Rude had a thin neck in proportion to his head, and his forehead was angular and covered with scars, the result of innumerable falls. He had not full command of all his limbs, and was always knocking and bruising himself. There were blue livid patches all over him that were slow to disappear, for he had flesh that did not heal easily. But he was not so open in his envy as Pelle. He asserted himself by boasting of his defects until he made them out to be sheer achievements, so that Pelle ended by envying him everything from the bottom of his heart. Rude had not Pelle's quick perception of things, but he had more instinct, and on certain points possessed quite a talent in anticipating what Pelle only learned by experience. He was already avaricious to a certain extent, and suspicious without connecting any definite thoughts with it. He ate a lion's share of the food, and had a variety of ways of getting out of doing the work. Behind their play there lay, clothed in the most childish forms, a struggle for the supremacy, and, for the present, Pelle was the one who came off second best. In an emergency, Rude always knew how to appeal to his good qualities and turn them to his own advantage. And through all this they were the best friends in the world and were quite inseparable. Pelle was always looking toward the sow's cottage when he was alone, and Rude ran off from home as soon as he saw his opportunity. It had rained hard in the course of the morning, in spite of Lasse, and Pelle was wet through. Now the blue-black cloud was drawing away over the sea, and the boats lay in the middle of it with all their red sails set and yet motionless. The sunlight flashed and glittered on wet surfaces, making everything look bright, and Pelle hung his clothes on a dwarf fur to dry. He was cold and kept close up to Peter, the biggest of the bullocks, as he lay chewing the cud. The animal was steaming, but Pelle could not bring warmth into his extremities, where the cold had taken hold. His teeth chattered, too, and he was shivering. And even now there was one of the cows that would not let him have any peace. Every time he had snuggled right in under the bullock and was beginning to get a little warmer, the cow strayed away over the northern boundary. There was nothing but sand there, but when it was a calf there had been a patch of mixed crops, and it still remembered that. It was one of two cows that had been turned out of the dairy herd on account of their dryness. They were ill-tempered creatures, always discontented and doing some mischief or other, and Pelle detested them heartily. They were two regular termagants, upon which even thrashing made no impression. The one was a savage beast that would suddenly begin stamping and bellowing like a mad bull in the middle of grazing, and, if Pelle went toward it, wanted to toss him. And when it saw its opportunity, it would eat up the cloth in which Pelle's dinner was wrapped. The other was old, and had crumpled horns that pointed in toward its eyes, 
one of which had a white pupil. It was the noisy one that was now at its tricks. Every other minute Pelle had to get up and shout, Hi, Blocka, you villainous beast! Just you come back! He was hoarse with anger, and at last his patience gave way, and he caught up a big stick and began to chase the cow. As soon as it saw his intention, it set off at a run toward the farm, and Pelle had to make a wide circle to turn it down to the herd again. Then it ran at full gallop in and out among the other animals. The herd became confused and ran hither and thither, and Pelle had to relinquish his pursuit for a time while he gathered them together. And then he began again at once. He was boiling with rage, and leaped about like an india-rubber ball, his naked body flashing in loops and curves upon the green grass. He was only a few yards from the cow, but the distance remained the same. He could not catch her up today. He stopped up by the rye-field, and the cow stood still almost at the same moment. It snapped at a few ears, and moved its head slowly to choose its direction. In a couple of leaps Pelle was up to it and had hold of its tail. He hit it over the nose with his cudgel. It turned quickly away from the rye, and set off at a flying pace down toward the others, while blows rained down upon its bony prominences. Every stroke echoed back from the dunes, like blows upon the trunk of a tree, and made Pelle swell with pride. The cow tried to shake Pelle off as it ran, but he was not to be got rid of. It crossed the brook in long bounds, backward and forward, with Pelle almost floating through the air. But the blows continued to rain down upon it. Then it grew tired and began to slacken its pace, and at last it came to a standstill, coughed, and resigned itself to the thrashing. Pelle threw himself flat upon his face and panted. Ha, ha! That had made him warm. Now that beast should. He rolled suddenly over to his side with a start. The bailiff! But it was a strange man with a beard who stood over him, looking at him with serious eyes. The stranger went on gazing at him for a long time without saying anything and Pelle grew more and more uneasy under his scrutiny. He had the sun right in his eyes, too, if he tried to return the man's gaze, and the cow still stood there coughing. "'What do you think the bailiff will say?' asked the man at last, quietly. "'I don't think he's seen it,' whispered Pelle, looking timidly round. "'But God has seen it, for he sees everything. And he has led me here to stop the evil in you while there's still time.' Wouldn't you like to be God's child?" The man sat down beside him and took his hand. Pelle sat tugging at the grass and wishing he had his clothes on. And you must never forget that God sees everything you do, even in the darkest night He sees. We are always walking in God's sight. But come now, it's unseemly to run about naked. And the man took him by the hand and led him to his clothes, and then, going across to the north side, he gathered the herd together while Pelle dressed himself. The wicked cow was over there again already, and had drawn a few of the others after it. Pelle watched the man in surprise. He drove the animals back quite quietly, neither using stones nor shouting. Before he got back, Blaka had once more crossed the boundary. But he turned and brought her back again, just as gently as before. That's not an easy cow to manage 
he said kindly when he returned. But you've got young legs. Shan't we agree to burn that? he asked, picking up the thick cudgel. And do what we have to do with just our hands. God will help you when you're in difficulties. And if you want to be a true child of God, you must tell the bailiff this evening what you did, and take your punishment. He placed his hand upon Pelle's head, and looked at him with that unendurable gaze, and then he left him, taking the stick with him. For a long time Pelle followed him with his eyes. So that was what a man looked like, who was sent by God to warn you. Now he knew, and it would be some time before he chased a cow like that again. But go to the bailiff, and tell of himself, and get the whiplash on his bare legs. Not if he knew it. Rather than that, God would have to be angry, if it was really true that he could see everything. It couldn't be any worse than the bailiff, anyhow. All that morning he was very quiet. He felt the man's eyes upon him in everything he did, and it robbed him of his confidence. He silently tested things, and saw everything in a new light. It was best not to make a noise, if you were always walking in the sight of God. He did not go on cracking his cattle-whip, but meditated a little on whether he should burn that too. But a little before midday Rude appeared, and the whole incident was forgotten. Rude was smoking a bit of cane that he had cut off the piece his mother used for cleaning the stove-pipes, and Pelle bartered some of his dinner for a few pulls at it. First they seated themselves astride the bullock Cupid, which was lying chewing the cud. It went on calmly chewing with closed eyes, until Rude put the glowing cane to the root of its tail, when it rose hastily, both boys rolling over its head. They laughed and boasted to one another of the somersault they had turned, as they went up to the high ground to look for blackberries. Thence they went to some birds' nests in the small firs, and last of all they set about their best game, digging up mice-nests. Pelle knew every mouse-hole in the meadow, and they lay down and examined them carefully. "'Here's one that has mice in it,' said Rude. "'Look, there's their dunghill.' "'Yes, that smells of mouse,' said Pelle, putting his nose to the hole. "'And the blades of grass turn outward, so the old ones must be out.' With Pelle's knife they cut away the turf, and set to work eagerly with two pieces of pot. The soil flew about their heads as they talked and laughed. "'My word, how fast we're getting on!' "'Yes, Strom couldn't work as fast.' Strom was a famous worker who got twenty-five oars a day more than any other autumn farm hands, and his example was used as an incentive to coax work out of the laborers. "'We shall soon get right into the inside of the earth.' "'Well, but it's burning hot in there.' "'Oh, nonsense! Is it?' Pelle paused doubtfully in his digging. "'Yes, the schoolmaster says so.' The boys hesitated and put their hands down into the hole. Yes, it was warm at the bottom so warm that Pelle found it necessary to pull out his hand and say, "'Oh, my word!' They considered a little, and then went on scraping out the hole as carefully as if their lives depended on it. In a little while straw appeared in the passage, and in a moment the internal heat of the earth was forgotten. In less than a minute they had uncovered the nest, and laid the little pink new-born mice out on the grass. They looked like half-hatched birds. 
They are ugly, said Pele, who did not quite like taking hold of them, but was ashamed not to do so. They're much nastier to touch than toads. I believe they're poisonous. Rude lay pinching them between his fingers. Poisonous? Don't be silly. Why, they haven't any teeth. There are no bones in them at all. I'm sure you could eat them quite well. Pah! Beastly! Pelle spat on the ground. I shouldn't be at all afraid of biting one, would you? Rude lifted a little mouse up toward his mouth. Afraid? Of course I'm not afraid, but— Pelle hesitated. No, you're afraid, because you're a blue bag. Now this nickname really only applied to boys who were afraid of water, but Pelle quickly seized one of the little mice and held it up to his mouth, at exactly the same distance from his lips that Rude was from his. You can see for yourself, he cried in an offended tone. Rude went on talking with many gestures. You're afraid, he said, and it's because you're Swedish. But when you're afraid you should just shut your eyes, so, and open your mouth. Then you pretend to put the mouse right into your mouth, and then— Rood had his mouth wide open, and held his hand close to his mouth. Pelle was under his influence, and imitated his movements. And then Pelle received a blow that sent the little mouse halfway down his throat. He retched and spat. And then his hands fumbled in the grass and got hold of a stone. But by the time he was on his feet and was going to throw it, Rude was far away up the fields. "'I must go home now,' he shouted innocently. "'There's something I've got to help my mother with.' Pelle did not love solitude, and the prospect of a blockade determined him at once for negotiations. He dropped the stone to show his serious wish for a reconciliation, and had to swear solemnly that he would not bear malice. Then at last Rude came back, tittering. I was going to show you something funny with the mouse, he said by way of diversion, but you held on to it like an idiot. He did not venture to come quite close up to Pelle, but stood watching his movements. Pelle was acquainted with the little white lie when the danger of a thrashing was imminent, but the lie as an attack was still unknown to him. If Rude, now that the whole thing was over, said that he only wanted to have shown him something funny, it must be true. But then why was he mistrustful? Pelle tried, as he had so often done before, to bend his little brain round the possible tricks of his playmate, but failed. "'You may just as well come up close,' he said stoutly, "'for if I wanted to, I could easily catch you up.' Rude came. "'Now we'll catch big mice,' he said. "'That's better fun.' They emptied Pelle's milk-bottle and hunted up a mouse's nest that appeared to have only two exits, one up in the meadow and the other halfway down the bank of the stream. Here they pushed in the mouth of the bottle, and widened the hole in the meadow into a funnel, and they took it in turns to keep an eye on the bottle and to carry water up to the other hole in their caps. It was not long before a mouse popped out into the bottle, which they then corked. What should they do with it? Pelle proposed that they should tame it and train it to draw their little agricultural implements. But Rude, as usual, got his way. It was to go out sailing. Where the stream turned and had hollowed out its bed into a hole as big as a cauldron, they made an inclined plane 
and let the bottle slide down into the water head foremost, like a ship being launched. They could follow it as it curved under the water until it came up slantingly and stood bobbing up and down on the water like a buoy, with its neck up. The mouse made the funniest leaps up toward the cork to get out, and the boys jumped up and down on the grass with delight. It knows the way it got in quite well. They imitated its unsuccessful leaps, lay down again, and rolled about in exuberant mirth. At last, however, the joke became stale. Let's take out the cork, suggested Rude. Yes, oh yes. Pelle waded quickly in, and was going to set the mouse at liberty. Wait a minute, you donkey! Rude snatched the bottle from him, and holding his hand over the mouth, put it back into the water. Now we'll see some fun, he cried, hastening up the bank. It was a little while before the mouse discovered that the way was open, but then it leaped. The leap was unsuccessful and made the bottle rock, so that the second leap was slanting and rebounded sideways. But then followed, with lightning rapidity, a number of leaps, a perfect bombardment, and suddenly the mouse flew right out of the bottle, head foremost into the water. "'That was a leap and a half!' cried Pelle, jumping straight up and down in the grass, with his arms at his sides. "'It could squeeze its body through just exactly!' And he jumped again, squeezing himself together. The mouse swam to land, but Rude was there, and pushed it out again with his foot. "'It swam well!' he said, laughing. It made for the opposite bank. "'Look out for the fellow!' Rude roared, and Pelle sprang forward and turned it away from the shore with a good kick. It swam helplessly back and forward in the middle of the pool, seeing one of the two dancing figures every time it approached a bank, and turning and turning endlessly. It sank deeper and deeper its fur becoming wet and dragging it down, until at last it swam right under water. Suddenly it stretched out its body convulsively and sank to the bottom, with all four legs outspread like a wide embrace. Pelle had all at once comprehended the perplexity and helplessness, perhaps was familiar with it. At the animal's final struggle, he burst into tears with a little scream and ran, crying loudly, up the meadow to the fir plantation. In a little while he came back again. I really thought Cupid had run away, he said repeatedly, and carefully avoided looking rude in the face. Quietly he waded into the water and fished up the dead mouse with his foot. They laid it upon a stone in the sun so that it might come to life again. When that failed, Pelle remembered a story about some people who were drowned in a lake at home, and who came to themselves again when cannons were fired over them. They clapped their hollowed hands over the mouse, and when that too brought about no result, they decided to bury it. Rude happened to remember that his grandmother in Sweden was being buried just now, and this made them go about the matter with a certain amount of solemnity. They made a coffin out of a matchbox and ornamented it with moss, and then they lay on their faces and lowered the coffin into the grave with twine, taking every possible care that it should not land upon its head. A rope might give way, 
Such things did happen sometimes, and the illusion did not permit of their correcting the position of the coffin afterward with their hands. When this was done, Pelle looked down into his cap, while Rude prayed over the deceased and cast earth upon the coffin. And then they made up the grave. "'I only hope it's not in a trance and going to wake up again,' exclaimed Pelle suddenly. They had both heard many unpleasant stories of such cases, and went over all the possibilities. How they woke up and couldn't get any air, and knocked upon the lid, and began to eat their own hands until Pelle could distinctly hear a knocking on the lid below. They had the coffin up in a trice and examined the mouse. It had not eaten its forepaws, at any rate, but it had most decidedly turned over on its side. They buried it again, putting a dead beetle beside it in the coffin for safety's sake, and sticking a straw down into the grave to supply it with air. Then they ornamented the mound and set up a memorial stone. "'It's dead now,' said Pelle, gravely and with conviction. "'Yes, I should just think so. Dead as a herring.' Rude put his ear to the straw and listened. "'And now it must be up with God in all his glory, right high, high up.' Rude sniffed contemptuously. "'Oh, you silly! Do you think it can crawl up there?' "'Well, can't mice crawl? I should like to know.' Pelle was cross. "'Yes, but not through the air. Only birds can do that.' Pelle felt himself beaten off the field, and wanted to be revenged. "'Then your grandmother isn't in heaven either,' he declared emphatically. There was still a little rancor in his heart from the young mouse episode. But this was more than Rude could stand. It touched his family pride and he gave Pelle a dig in the side with his elbow. The next moment they were rolling in the grass, holding one another by the hair, and making awkward attempts to hit one another on the nose with their clenched fists. They turned over and over like one lump, now one uppermost, now the other. They hissed hoarsely, groaned and made tremendous exertions. "'I'll make you sneeze red,' said Pelle angrily, as he rose above his adversary. But the next moment he was down again, with Rude hanging over him and uttering the most fearful threats about black eyes and seeing stars. Their voices were thick with passion, and suddenly they were sitting opposite one another on the grass, wondering whether they should set up a howl. Rude put out his tongue. Pelle went a step further and began to laugh, and they were once more the best of friends. They set up the memorial stone, which had been overturned in the heat of battle, and then sat down, hand in hand, to rest after the storm, a little quieter than usual. It was not because there was more evil in Pelle, but because the question had acquired for him an importance of its own, and he must understand it, that a meditative expression came into his eyes, and he said, thoughtfully, "'Well, but you told me yourself she was paralyzed in her legs. Well, what if she was? Why, then she couldn't crawl up into heaven. Oh, you booby! It's her spirit, of course. Then the mouse's spirit can very well be up there, too. No, it can't, for mice haven't got any spirit. Haven't they? Then how is it they can breathe? That was one for Rude. 
and the tiresome part of it was that he attended Sunday school. His fists would have come in handy again now, but his instinct told him that sooner or later Pelle would get the better of him in fighting, and anyhow his grandmother was saved. Yes, he said, yielding, and it certainly could breathe. Well, then, it was its spirit flying up that overturned the stone. That's what it was. A distant sound reached them, and far off near the cottage they could see the figure of a fat woman beckoning threateningly. "'The sow's calling you,' said Pelle. The two boys never called her anything but the sow between themselves. So Rude had to go. He was allowed to take the greater part of the contents of the dinner-basket with him, and ate as he ran. They had been too busy to eat. Pelle sat down among the dunes and ate his dinner. As usual when Rude had been with him, he could not imagine what had become of the day. The birds had ceased singing, and not one of the cattle was still lying down, so it must be at least five o'clock. Up at the farm they were busy driving in. It went at full gallop, out and in, out and in. The men stood up in the carts and thrashed away at the horses with the end of the reins, and the swaying loads were hurried along the field roads, looking like bristling, crawling things that had been startled and are darting to their holes. A one-horsed vehicle drove out from the farm and took the high road up to the town at a quick trot. It was the farmer. He was driving so fast that he was evidently off to the town on the spree so there was something gone wrong at home, and there would be crying at the farm that night. Yes, there was Father Lasse, driving out with the water-cart, so it was half-past five. He could tell that, too, by the birds beginning their pleasant evening twittering, that was soft and sparkling like the rays of the sun. Far inland, above the stone quarry, where the crane stood out against the sky, a cloud of smoke rose every now and then into the air, and burst in a fountain of pieces of rock. Long after came the explosion, bit by bit, in a series of rattling reverberations. It sounded as if someone were running along and slapping his thigh with fingerless gloves. The last few hours were always long. The sun was so slow about it, and there was nothing to fill up the time either. Pelle himself was tired, and the tranquillity of evening had the effect of subduing his voice. But now they were driving out for the milking up there, and the cattle were beginning to graze along the edge of the meadow that turned toward the farm, so the time was drawing near. At last the herd-boys began to yodel over at the neighboring farms, first one and then several joining in. Oh, drive home, oh ho, oh ho! Oh, drive home, oh ho, oh ho! From all sides the soft tones vibrated over the sloping land, running out like the sound of happy weeping into the first glow of evening, and Pelle's animals began to move farther after each pause to graze. But he did not dare to drive them home yet, for it meant only a thrashing from the bailiff or the pupil if he arrived too early. He stood at the upper end of the meadow, and called his homeward drifting flock together, and when the last tones of the call had died away, he began it himself and stepped on one side. The animals ran with a peculiar little trot and heads extended. The shadow of the grass 
lay in long, thin stripes across the ground, and the shadows of the animals were endless. Now and then a calf lowed slowly and broke into a gallop. They were yearning for home, and Pelle was yearning too. From behind a hollow the sun darted long rays out into space, as if it had called all its powers home for the night, and now poured them forth in one great longing from west to east. Everything pointed in long thin lines, and the eager longing of the cattle seemed visible in the air. To the mind of the child there was nothing left out of doors now. Everything was being taken in, and he longed for his father with a longing that was almost a pain. And when at last he turned the corner with the herd, and saw old Lasse standing there, smiling happily with his red-rimmed eyes, and opening the gate to the fold, the boy gave way and threw himself weeping into his father's arms. "'What's the matter, laddie? What's the matter?' asked the old man, with concern in his voice, stroking the child's face with a trembling hand. "'Has any one been unkind to you? No. Well, that's a good thing. They'd better take care, for happy children are in God's own keeping, and Lasse would be an awkward customer if it came to that. So you were longing for me, were you? Then it's good to be in your little heart, and it only makes Lasse happy.' but go in now and get your supper, and don't cry any more. And he wiped the boy's nose with his hard, crooked fingers, and pushed him gently away. End of chapter 4